Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, everybody. We got a great one today. You know, for a change. Uh, we do have a great one today. Dahlia Lithwick and Joyce Vance. My God, these are brilliant women. Dahlia, for you regulars, uh, she has been our go-to on the Supreme Court. She is a senior editor for Slate, where she writes about the Supreme Court. She is also host of her, her podcast, Amicus. Joyce makes her third appearance on the podcast. She served as a uh, U.S. attorney in the Northern District of Alabama from 2009 to 2017. Those years, not coincidentally, coincide uh, with the years Barack Obama was uh, president. Now Joyce is a distinguished professor of law at the University of, of Alabama. Both had been talking about the Alito draft since it dropped, so I was honored to have them both join me. What I, I, I found interesting is how much this has impacted the two of them. Dahlia is one of the funniest people I know. Our, our, our conversations usually contain a lot of laughter. Uh, there is some here. Dark humor has its place. Actually, we also uh, did a grim one uh, right after the court ruled for SB8 in Texas, the law in Texas banning abortions after six weeks. And they did this on what's called the, the shadow docket. Uh, on, on that show, we were uh, joined by the then head of Planned Parenthood in, in Minnesota, Sarah Stace. And that was, that was a grim one. Uh, that one was maddening for a number of reasons, not the least of which is the bounty aspect of it. But this one, you know, Joyce Vance, uh, if you've seen her on MSNBC, uh, she's a cool cucumber. And I was just struck at how upset she is. And Dahlia, too. This has to be a wake-up call. The ramifications for women's health, for their autonomy, for their economic well-being, for their families is impossible to overstate. It, it this represents a blow to freedom, which every woman and every man should be angry about. But uh, as you will hear, we, we should also be angry and alarmed by what this decision says about our democracy, which is that it is broken and may be beyond repair. You'll hear both Dahlia and, and Joyce on this. As Dahlia points out, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, Amy Coney Barrett, John Roberts, and yes, Samuel Alito were all appointed by men who became president while losing the popular vote. They're all confirmed by uh, a wildly misapportioned Senate. Roberts and Alito gave us Citizens United, which unleashed billions and billions of dark money, unaccountable dark money into our elections. Also, Shelby County, which uh, neutered the Voting Rights Act decision after decision, which have allowed Republican legislatures 
to wildly gerrymander their state so they can pass laws to suppress the votes of racial and ethnic minorities, of students, uh, the poor. This is a pretty serious one, you know, for a change. But if you want some laughs and you live near Red Bank, New Jersey, I'll be at the Count Basie Theater on June 3rd. Um, Peter, did that plug kind of undercut uh, the seriousness of my opening remarks? Uh, yeah, yeah, a little bit. Okay, what if I uh, offered a really great idea? Uh, I'm going to save this. Uh, here's my idea. You know how, uh, Peter, uh, just the other day, a few days ago, uh, the Schumer put up on the floor a, a bill to guarantee the right to abortion for every woman in the country. Mm-hmm. And it went down, right? Uh, 49.51. Yeah. Okay, here's my idea. Schumer should introduce a bill, put it on the floor, that gives everyone the right to have and use contraception in this country. Let's get on the offense. 90% plus Americans believe that you should have the right to use contraception. We already have the governor of Mississippi saying, well, that might be next here. <laughs> let's, let's make them take the votes. I think that's a great idea. I, first of all, I think it could pass. And then we'll pass that law. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. There's been a lot of debate and there's been a lot of people saying that they're upset that Roe was never codified into law. This is what it means to codify something into law, right? Absolutely. And kind of uh, that's what we were trying to do with that vote. And it went down as predicted. And you could get maybe Collins and Murkowski on board with by softening it. But that gets you, what, uh, 51 or 52 and uh, this one, you win. And I think people go, yeah, yeah. So that's, that's I think that saves the Red Bank plug. <laughs> anyway, we're going to, we'll return with Dahlia Lithwick and Joyce Vance. It's a, um, it's a great one. It's a great one, you know. For a change. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that, means, that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now... Get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. 
Rules and restrictions may apply. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. I know you've been probably talking about this since the draft was leaked, so I appreciate your uh, coming on, but I can't think of two better people to do it. And Dahlia, of course, talks about SCOTUS all the time. And uh, Joyce, really kind of want to talk to you also about just and and Dahlia about democracy <laughs> and, the, <laughs> and just how we got here exactly. But you guys have been talking about this uh, since it dropped, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yep, yep. What about it most shocked you or surprised you? Because we knew this was going to happen, right? Maybe they were going to go with the Mississippi, just uphold Mississippi, right? That was was that the hope. I would say, and um, I think Joyce probably agrees, once you heard the oral argument in Dobbs, it was fairly clear there was one vote for doing that, that the chief justice was trying to find this middle way where they didn't altogether overturn Roe and Casey, but maybe just upheld the 15-week ban in Mississippi and left the question of overturning precedent for another day. But I, I don't think having listened to that argument, I came away thinking there was going to be a majority to do it small. So I think given that we thought it was going to be a big swing, the only things that shocked me were A, the leak, which is unprecedented, um, and B, just the nasty tone that given the choice to try to write something that was sober and serious and thoughtful about the first case in history that would actually overturn precedent to constrict freedom rather than increase it. Uh, Justice Alito went just for the low road. And so in a weird way, maybe I would just say both the bigness and the smallness of Alito was the surprise for me. I totally agree with that. You know, Alito from the jump saying Roe was egregiously wrong when it was decided, this sort of mean, nasty, demeaning, patronizing tone towards women, which is not what you would really want to do if you were thinking as a Supreme Court justice, I'm about to reverse 49 years worth of honored precedent, precedent women have relied upon. I need to do this in a credible way that gives folks a leg to stand on. None of that for Justice Alito. He just went straight for it. Ted Cruz knows who leaked it in the sense that he knows that it was a liberal clerk. That's he's, he's sure of that. And, of course, most people don't know who. <laughs> Could have been a conservative clerk who wanted to lock this in, right? I mean, that's a theory as well, right? But my theory is that it was Alito who, who leaked it because this language is so ugly that it can't possibly stay this way. So he just wanted to show how ugly he was. Is, is that a, a good theory <laughs> or a satisfying theory? 
You know, I think the reality is we don't know. It's so damaging to the integrity of the court as an institution to have this happen. And I think in some ways, a leak like this uh, that Dahlia points out is is unprecedented could not have happened if the court had been at a more of a high watermark with its public credibility. But I'll tell you, in all honesty, I've been very hesitant to speculate about who the leaker is because we don't know. And, and we saw right in the aftermath of the leak, there were uh, people, liberal Supreme Court clerks who were identified uh, as, as, quote unquote, the leaker on Twitter. Oh, yeah. By people who had no basis for saying that. And those people were essentially being doxxed online. So I think whether it's a, a liberal clerk or a, a conservative clerk or, or you know, a, a janitor who picked it up off the printer, I mean, we just don't know who it is. One thing that I agree with the chief justice about is that we should find out. And now that he has the marshal of the Supreme Court conducting an investigation, I think he has an obligation to release whatever he learns to the public. Well, I was joking, of course. I don't. I was just touting a, a, a <laughs> funny therapy, a yes. funny theory. I don't. We clearly don't know who did it, but I think it's funny that Cruz is certain that he knows it was a liberal. Well, you know, well and he said he was certain because he wasn't a moron. <laughs> I'm less sure that it was a janitor or uh, somebody wandering around the court or somebody who p- pulled it out of a dumpster uh, because some of the leaks, including the ones that came out this past week, are from people who are saying that they are familiar with the deliberations, right? So there is, and I think Tom Goldstein did this on SCOTUS blog, but I, I feel like we're up to like six or seven leaks at this point. There was some reason to believe that the Wall Street Journal had news of this uh, even before the leak came out uh, in Politico because they wrote one of those op-eds that is a tune-up of wobbly justices who might be thinking of not going all the way. And then there was the leak itself. Then there was the leak of the document that night. There was a leak from the chief justice or about the chief justice sort of saying that he was not one of the five people in this majority and he was still trying to cobble together some kind of alternative thing. And then we had another series of leaks from uh, allegedly three people, conservatives who are familiar with deliberation. So I'm going to whole hog associate myself with Joyce, which is I think we're spending time on the leak and it is to the detriment of the national discourse on the real issue issue, which is half of the people in the country are about to lose fundamental freedoms and rights. But I do think, and I think Nina Totenberg said this on some of the shows this weekend, it is more likely than not that it came either from a justice or a clerk, but somebody who knows what is happening in deliberations. That's not the stuff that, you know, a a secretary or a janitor knows. But more emphatically, I think the cost of this kind of leak is so high for a law clerk that I am more and more of the view that it was authorized by a justice. And that is, I say that with the mea culpa because Joyce is right, people's lives can be ruined by this kind of speculation. Let me, you mentioned deliberations a couple of times. So I want to ask you, at what stage was this thing written? Did, Did Alito write this himself? Did the other justices see this at all? Was this leaked without them seeing it? Were, were the deliberations simply just saying, okay, uh, what'd you all think? Okay, we're going to go, uh, we're going to be 5-4 for just getting rid of Roe v. Wade. Go ahead. 
uh, Clarence, you're the one, you're senior, you get to write it if you want to. Oh, no, I don't want to write that. Uh, Alito, go, ah, me, 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 me. And then he writes, it goes off and writes it. No one's seen it. What's that process? You know, assuming that this worked the way it normally does, and I'm really interested in hearing Dolly's view on this, the court would have taken an immediate vote right after argument, and the senior judge and the majority would have assigned the opinion, which would have been how uh, it ended up with Justice Alito. And then he would have circulated a draft. And so this leaked draft has a February date on it. I suppose that that could have been his first draft or an early version of his draft. But the theory behind the link, and I'll indulge in the speculation just for a minute without trying to cast blame, would be that this was some effort to let people know, you know, how, quote, right Justice Alito got it, and an effort to keep others from straying from the fold. So that all makes sense. Yeah, and I think maybe added into that, we know that subsequent reporting around the first Obamacare showed a very similar pattern, right, where the chief justice got squishy, wasn't prepared to do the thing that somebody in the court on the conservative flank wanted him to do. There was certainly something was intimated that went to the Wall Street Journal, uh, who wrote, uh, you know, buck up, buddy kind of op-ed that looked a lot like the one that we saw even before the leak. It didn't work in that case. It didn't bring the chief justice on board and he ended up voting with the liberal wing at the court. I mean, one of the really sad codas to the whole thing is that it doesn't matter what John Roberts does in this case. He's either immaterial if he peels off and votes with the three liberals or he can be, you know, the sixth vote with the conservatives. But what he does is not dispositive. But if the theory of this is that this was done either to scupper Robert's efforts to pull together some median position that he could pull off an Amy Coney Barrett or a Brett Kavanaugh to do something less dramatic, and this is trying to stick a fork in that, or alternatively, to make sure that Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh, who are presumptively the people who might care about the public esteem of the court and the legitimacy of the court, and who might not like, by the way, an Alito opinion that's snarking about what a dummy Brett Kavanaugh's mentor and hero Anthony Kennedy was for the opinion in Casey. So there is some reason to believe, I think, that there's a bit of a pattern here to leak these things um, in order to make sure that both Kavanaugh and Barrett are either boxed in, if you believe that theory of the case, or that they're ashamed enough to soften up and vote with the chief, if you believe that theory of the case. And I think that's kind of why we all got to see it. Because this is a way of sealing in amber this preliminary document that obviously is going to probably has already been subject to some either big revisions or actually that there are justices who have said, you know what, I can't sign off on this at all. In other words, I guess what I'm saying is it's the court talking to itself. It's not the court talking to us. It is a piece of horse trading intramurally that's using public disapprobation and shaming to get justices to change their positions. Is that fair, Joyce, what I just said? Yeah, I mean, I think it really is fair 
And the one thing that I've been sort of thinking about but haven't really articulated out loud is that in some ways, the opinion that always frightened me more than this outright reversal of Roe, I mean, don't get me wrong, I don't like it, I think it's wrong, I think it's dangerous for the country. And the the one, the only silver lining about that sort of an opinion is that releasing this draft really squares the outrage, right? People understand what's at stake. People are as activated as they're ever going to be. I was always a little bit afraid of an opinion authored by the chief justice that sort of does what he did in Shelby County versus Holder, the voting rights case, leaves the law in place, right? In that case, he leaves the Voting Rights Act in place, and then he proceeds to gut it. Here, he could have left Roe in place. Oh, no, 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 we're not overturning Roe but moved the goalposts so far that they, in essence, were moved, upholding the 15-week statute in Mississippi, and and as the court has essentially already done on the shadow docket, upholding the six-week Texas case. And I was a little bit concerned that a majority around that sort of view might not have created the sense of outrage and people appreciating the emergency of the moment So I guess if there's one silver lining here, it's that it's not a very good silver lining. I feel like I'm grasping at straws to try to salvage the weak. I want to move to kind of our democracy and what this means for it, because first of all, we mentioned 6-3. Dahlia mentioned that it was 6-3 and that Robert's vote doesn't really count. And of course, that goes back to Merrick Garland and to Coney Barrett. Because Merrick Garland, as all my listeners will remember, that was about, oh, it's an election year. And you can't. <laughs> and uh, Lindsey Graham said, use this against me. Use this tape against me. And then, of course, Coney Barrett was sworn in, what, like a week or eight days before the election. So those are two stolen seats. And then we talked about Shelby. And Shelby. That gutted the uh, Voting Rights Act, and you know it, that ended preclearance. And as soon as preclearance was ended, it was it was doing what Ginsburg said, which is taking the umbrella away. And suddenly, people got wet again. And the what was it? The Fourth Circuit called North Carolina's uh, scheme. Uh, they said it targeted African Americans with almost surgical precision. Once they say that, what, what's, what's to keep Roberts from going, uh, you know, I guess I was wrong. <laughs> and, and Citizens United, like, you know, Kennedy wrote that, right? And he said, well, the great thing about this is going to be transparency. There's going to be disclosure, right? He said that in the opinion, right? And then there wasn't. And now we're seeing them trying to, uh, suppress votes. We're seeing them trying to elect people who believe the election was stolen to Secretary of State. They're trying to do past legislation. Talk to just the threat to our democracy. I, I guess I could just say, and I've talked about this, I know we've talked about this before on this show, Al, but this is the product of a fundamentally broken set of democratic 
governing institutions. And so, you know, whether it's that five of the six Supreme Court justices appointed by Republicans were appointed by presidents who lost the majority of the votes, they're then confirmed by a wildly malapportioned Senate such that if you are in California, you somehow have the same amount of senators as you do if you're in North Dakota. Then those justices of those, you know, five of the six go on to turn around and not just gut Section 5 in Shelby County, not just bless, you know, unlimited money, dark money flowing into the coffers in Citizens United, uh, but to gut Section 2 of uh, the Voting Rights Act in Brnovich to bless gerrymandering. So in some sense, you have this kind of snake chasing its own tail where you have a machinery that is already fundamentally anti-democratic, fundamentally promoting minority rule structures and systems. And then it keeps reinforcing itself by having this minority rule Supreme Court continue to contract the circle. And the only way to repair that is to look at it as a huge across the boards anti-democratic system that is preserving minoritarian interests when there's a minority, a Republican Party that has no interest in ever getting another vote, right? All it needs to do is keep doing what it's doing and Democrats will keep losing. And so I think the best way to think about this, at least for, for the purposes of your question, is to say, what do you do when you have at every level, whether it's the Electoral College, whether it is, you know, a wildly malapportioned Senate, whether it is gerrymandered districts, where it is vote suppression, by the way, that has also been blessed by the Supreme Court, vote purges, vote, vote caging, and racial uh, uh, voting suppression. All of those things are working in tandem here to make sure that the court looks exactly the way it does. And then the court turns around and says, let's reaffirm and re-up every one of those things to make us fractionally less democratic. And so you're right. This is if you look at it from that kind of way, way, way back distance, this is a whole bunch of interlocked systems that are suppressing majority rule. And now you really have a moment where a court is saying, we don't care. And Alito is really clear about this. And he's like, I don't care if you don't like it. I don't care if the polling says 70% of the American people don't want to see Roe overturned. Go vote. And the crack up is he's the guy who wrote Bernovich last year <laughs> that made it harder to vote. So I think that there is this. Bernovich was the Arizona. Case. Yes, it was the Arizona case. It was Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, what what essentially was left of the Voting Rights Act. And it was Justice Alito that created a whole new test. And so I guess it's just rich when you have Justice Alito saying, look, if you don't like this, go out and vote, vote out these people. And every single piece of this broken system I've described has been shored up by the Supreme Court. You know, this is one of the parts of the opinion where I found it hard to keep my um, lawyerly composure and, and read it as an exercise in the law, because this this notion that they can pretend that they haven't broken voting in many ways, supporting this, I, I don't mean the Supreme Court justices personally, but permitting um, a party that supports this myth of voter fraud, when in reality, the trajectory over the last 10 to 15 years has been voter suppression 
that is based upon this myth of fraud and this notion that he would then slap women in the face, he being Alito, slap women in the face and say, well, if you don't like my opinion, you can go vote. I'm returning this issue to state legislatures to make a decision about, while at the same time, Mitch McConnell and others are talking about a national ban. At some point, the hypocrisy just becomes too much to stomach and too much to engage with on an intellectual level, for me at least. I think you guys perhaps have a better temperament than I do on these issues. But the point at which it seemed like some of the folks on the Republican side should have broken and and the hypocrisy should have been too much was this point in the Texas litigation where the Supreme Court is the issue involving Texas's vigilante justice statute goes up to the Supreme Court and instead of doing what they should have done with Roe versus Wade as the law of the land and saying, no, Texas, you can't do this, they sort of threw their hands up in the air, clutched their pearls and said, oh, we don't know what to do with this vigilante justice statute. We've never seen anything like this before. Texas isn't enforcing the law. It's just individual people out in the ether taking women's rights away. So we're going to let this one go through for now. And I remember watching that in that moment happening on the shadow docket and thinking, this is so broken. This is so broken beyond repair that even Republicans certainly won't be able to go along with it. And of course, that was absolute naivete on my part. Republicans were largely delighted by that. One of the things you mentioned, the Dahlia mentioned, was gerrymandering. And so the court says we, we can't get involved in gerrymandering unless it's about race. And oh, by the way, in Alabama, they gerrymandered about race, but it's too close to the election for us to change that. That was amazing. Uh, let, let me let's turn to, uh, you know, I, I, Alito at some point says, well, this doesn't this is just about Roe. This doesn't uh, impact Griswold or, or Bergefell or Lawrence. Did he say those specifically or did he hint at that? I mean, he he goes through the list of what are these unenumerated rights. So these what's called um, substantive due process rights. And most of them, he says, oh, this doesn't affect the birth control cases. This doesn't affect, uh, you know, the right to raise and parent your children. And then he does something a little weird around both Lawrence v. Texas, that was the anti-sodomy law, and Obergefell, which is the marriage equality law. And he kind of hives them off. And, And let's bear in mind that the test he's using, he says, you know, is this unenumerated uh, fundamental right something that is sort of a longstanding tradition of what liberty is, right? And then he says, well, of course, you know, raising your children is that, you know, of course, uh, you know, laws that say you can't be sterilized or have uh, the family broken up, all that is fine. That's longstanding. And then he gets to um, Obergefell and Lawrence, and he does kind of do a trick there because, of course, those two cases do not sit within comfortably within the idea of liberties that have had a longstanding recognition in the United States. And so then he sort of compares those to um, what prostitution. And I mean, he sort of tries to say they're safe, but he doesn't actually put them in the cluster of things that he explicitly says are safe. 
Um, and Joyce, you will correct me if I'm getting this wrong, but, you know, the same language he had used in his Obergefell dissent to say, these are not considered um, longstanding traditions of what liberty means. So I think he's doing a kind of a two-step where on the one hand, he's saying, look, your birth control is safe and, you know, loving versus Virginia, the you can't um, have a interracial marriage, that's safe. But then he's saying also the LGBTQ rights cases are safe, but he puts them on much less solid footing. And I think all of those things ultimately are just safe because he's asserting that they're safe. Uh, but given that he's kind of the metaphor I keep using is pulled out the Jenga piece, uh, which is Roe and Griswold and this fundamental um, right to privacy and autonomy, having pulled that piece out, all you are left with is his promise that everything that is also in that cluster is safe, but no doctrinal theory that I can find that actually protects them. I think that that's absolutely correct. And in addition to the absence of any doctrinal reason, you know, once you start talking about, so these are unenumerated rights that come out of the penumbra, or at least come out of some of the amendments to the Constitution. And your sense um, that it's like a Jenga piece where if you pull one out, others can become vulnerable. I think that that's exactly the best way of characterizing it. What, what I really am concerned about here is Justice Alito's opinion in essence says, oh, you can trust me. And I don't know why I should, because this is someone who, when he was up for confirmation, talked about Roe as longstanding safe precedent. But in the opening lines of this opinion says Roe was egregiously wrong from the time that it was decided. And so if you can't trust the statements he's made over time, why should you trust where he's headed in the future? I know that that's not a very lawyerly argument, but look, we're all people. And I think we have reactions to this opinion on a very human level. And again, because we're talking about the institution of the court here and whether the institution is strong, you know, there's no army that goes out and enforces Supreme Court decisions. They have to rely on public confidence in them. I don't see this opinion as being one that gives me any reason to have confidence about where the court is headed on Lawrence, Obergefell, and, and maybe on the contraception cases and others as well. And, and if I could, could I say one other thing? Cause I think the other, the other trick here, in addition to what Joyce just said, which is, oh, trust me, I'm not coming, um, you know, for, for marriage equality. And already you have folks who are saying that's the next thing to go. Uh, I'm not coming for contraception, but we're already seeing. Mississippi making claims about, you know, maybe maybe now is the time to go after contraception. And so then you're thrust into what Joyce is describing, which is, oh, no, no, trust me that those things are safe because I say so. But I think the other thing that's really, really critical here, Al, is that he then says, having said, I'm batting away 50 years of precedent that um, shores up Roe and I'm batting away precedent that goes all the way back to Reconstruction to the 14th Amendment about what family privacy and autonomy means means. All that is meaningless because it's not in the words of the Constitution. But let's talk about Matthew Hale. Like, let's talk mm. about 13th century judges who thought that witch burning was awesome and that a man couldn't rape his wife because she was property. That he's leaning on people who 
quite literally presided over witch trials and quite literally, uh, you know, took these unbelievable positions about women and their freedom and the way that they were chattel. And that is good precedent for him. But he bats away Loving versus Virginia and bats away the entire sort of substantive due process theory that's baked into the 14th Amendment because that stuff is not real. And so there's a way in which like, dude, you want to like go to the, you know, ancient legal, you know, regime, more power to you. But it's the weirdness of having that stuff is visible in this opinion and economic hardship and physical danger and peril and poverty to women is nowhere visible in this opinion. It's like being trolled by the worst judicial troll ever. I I thought there were a lot of weird things like The Constitution does not make any express reference to the right to obtain an abortion. Well, first of all, it it doesn't make any reference to women, does it? Nope. Okay. The right to vote. That's not explicitly in there either. Well, it gives that to the states. And, of course, the states gave that to white men who own property. And but women got the vote 130 years later. (laughs) Uh, But abortion was legal then, right? During colonial times, I mean, quickening and you could have an abortion until the baby moved. And I don't think they even prosecuted it if you did it afterwards. Am I, am I wrong? It really differed by jurisdiction. And he has this massive appendix where he tries to prove that it was unlawful everywhere. And he goes further. I mean, I think he's also trying to prove or to at least flick at trying to prove that there was notions of fetal personhood uh, that that uh, have been longstanding. I mean, he really goes for it and amasses. I think you're right that a lot of this is ahistorical and bad evidence for the claim that, you know, it was always assumed to be unlawful and in some cases, you know, talks about it in terms of homicide and uh, felony murder. And so he's he's going for it. But I think that the other thing that is really fascinating is that he, in addition to sort of trying to amass bad history that goes back centuries, what he completely ignores and what is read out altogether of the 14th Amendment is that the entire purpose of the 14th Amendment wasn't to give women rights. It was to give the entire institution of chattel slavery, which was predicated on the idea that your spouse wasn't your spouse. They could take away your children. They could impregnate your wife in order to produce more. I mean, that the entire basis of chattel slavery was to destroy families so that you could produce more slaves. And the whole, if you kind of go back and you look at the speeches and you look at what the intent was, it was to say liberty at its core is the right to marry the person you love, to have your children be in the home, to not have them be removed willy-nilly by the state, and to make decisions about how many children you have and where they live and where you have them. And I don't know if I missed that footnote, but all of that history of what this notion of fundamental rights and what substantive due process means is like completely unrecognized. The entire purpose of giving force to that, of, of substantive due process, so that slaves who were not protected by the Bill of Rights, they needed some affirmative definition of what liberty was post-slavery, and it was this, I, I see it nowhere. 
And that's what's so transparent in this opinion. It's this notion that you would rely upon these sources like Hale and then bring forward the proposition that, well, because women didn't have this right back in the 17 and 1800s, they can't have it today. That's what scares me so much about the risk to these other cases. It's this mindset of wanting to keep everything's not really even in the 1950s, right? Maybe the 1850s or the 1750s. And the sourcing that Alito provides for much of the argument seems to confirm that. You brought up the uh, testimony that uh, Alito gave about precedent and Roe v. Wade and Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh went way, way out of his way to talk about what an important precedent uh, Roe was, right? I mean, he just went on and on, and he just said, uh, I'll quote a little bit from it. Roe is an important precedent of the Supreme Court and has been reaffirmed many times in 1992 when the court specifically considered whether to reaffirm or overturn it. The three-justice opinion of Justice Kennedy, Justice Souter, and Justice O'Connor went through all the factors, the stare decisis factors, analyzed those, and decided to reaffirm Roe. That makes Casey precedent on precedent. It's been relied on. Casey itself has been cited by authorities in subsequent cases, so that precedent on precedent is very important. Now, I was gone at this point. And I don't understand why just that Feinstein, he was answering Feinstein. Why didn't some Democratic senator, the next one, just say, so w- what you're saying is meaningless, right? I mean, you're, you can very well vote to overturn Roe, right? And then what could Kavanaugh say? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess so. It just is gone. And of course, Susan Collins said, you cue know. Cue the impression, cue the impression, do it. I talked to Judge Kavanaugh, and he told me that Roe v. Wade is settled law. <laughs> and I'm confident that you know, that was that, right? Yep. Everybody knows that settled law can be overturned by the Supreme Court. That's why it says the Supreme Court, because it can overturn settled law. So do you think she was just lying or stupid? I mean, or both? Or what was that about? Oh, I know her more than you do, so. I'd say lying. (laughs) I think she knew. You know, it's disturbing to me that when she was asked this week if she would vote for the the proposed law that would make Roe the, you know, a a federally imposed legal mandate, her response was that she wouldn't do it because it didn't protect the Catholic Church. And so I think she always has an excuse, right? She's, She's always got a reason to not do it. She says she believes in women's bodily integrity, but what what is it um, that Rachel Maddow always says? Watch what they do, not what they say. I, I feel like that's the world we're living in here. And okay. it's and it's the gaslighting, right? I mean, I think, I don't know if you feel it as acutely as I do, but I feel like, you know, to hear Lisa Murkowski, you know, I- emerge last week from this revelation, this is a body blow, this is a betrayal, I can't, you know, they lied to my face. And then as Joyce says, but I refuse to vote for WIPA, uh, the Women's Health Protection Act, which would enshrine Roe in federal law. And, you know, by the same token, Many, many reasonable readers of these opinions this week said, holy cow, this is unbelievable. They're going to start to criminalize abortion. They're going to start to make it a homicide. Physicians are going to be charged. 
oh, you're hysterical, you're out of your mind, you're overreacting. And now they're doing it, right? I mean, we're seeing it in Louisiana. We're seeing chatter. You know, we are certainly seeing, I think the statistic I've seen is 70 cases of women uh, being charged since 2017 with uh, miscarriage-related uh, uh, what are then charged as homicide, a, a tragic Oklahoma case of a mom serving time because of a miscarriage that was charged as a murder. So the, it's it's the not just look at what it was, they're it was, doing. It, was that because uh, of she drug must- use in utero? I think that the, although it was not proven, um, I think at trial, but I think that it's going to be we are going to enter into a regime in which if it is truly illegal in 22, 24, whatever states, and you are going to have this, and this goes back to Joyce's vigilante point about Texas, this is not being enforced necessarily by any legal regime we understand. This is going to be people turning in their neighbors and saying, well, I saw the Uber driver drop her at the clinic, and we are going to see prosecutors emboldened to charge folks for sending abortion drugs in the mail. And we're seeing Missouri is already saying we're going to charge folks who go out of state. I mean, all this happened in the blink of an eye. And we're being told, oh, don't pay attention to what we're doing. (laughs) Just pay attention to the fact that we're telling you that Griswold is safe and um, women are not going to be prosecuted. And so I think one of the things, and I remember this feeling after SB8 for some of the reasons that I think Joyce suggested, which is after the Texas vigilante law was blessed for on the shadow docket and then uh, after it was fully briefed and argued, uh, I thought this is catastrophically bad for all the reasons Joyce laid out. And I was persistently being told that I was overreacting and I was hysterical and it wasn't that bad and this is not going to affect anyone. Now it's happening again where you're seeing sort of either the Eric Erickson's tweeting, oh, now we should go after the 19th Amendment and repeal the right to vote or Ted Cruz saying, ha ha ha, in a week, this is all going to settle down where women when women realize their lives aren't going to change. And in the meantime, we're seeing states enacting homicide uh, statutes uh, for women who endanger their babies. I, I literally feel like I took crazy pills because one of these two realities is happening. And I keep being told that the thing that I'm seeing is not the thing that is, in fact, taking place. And I would love to put a fine point on just how risky that is, because like you, I've had a lot of people say, oh, you're being an alarmist. Oh, you're thinking it's worse than it is. So these criminalization statutes are really a problem. And I would add to that in states that have personhood uh, rules, like Alabama, for instance, has an amendment to the Constitution um, that essentially says that life begins at conception that can go into effect once Roe is overturned. And the person who makes that decision about whether you get prosecuted isn't somebody who operates under a spotlight with a lot of transparency. It could be someone like a, you know, a local prosecutor in a small rural area with very little oversight. You don't even have to get prosecuted, frankly. You can just be investigated by your sheriff or your police chief. And if you're um, a woman who's perceived as being strong, uh, what better way to retaliate at you than by investigating your miscarriage as a possible case of murder? What better way to keep you in line, to keep you quiet, to make sure that you behave? I don't think we can overstate how risky this is just because of the decentralization that's inherently involved in prosecuting state and local crimes. 
Women's futures are really at risk here. God forbid you have a miscarriage and you need medical care afterwards to restore your health because you are going to think twice about going and getting it. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Joyce Vance and Dahlia Lithwick. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. How far can this go? I mean, for example, a morning after pill, that could be prosecutable, taking that. We're already seeing, I mean, we're seeing talk of, again, in Mississippi, uh, refusing to say they won't go after contraception next and the kinds of things that they deem to be. And we rehearsed this, by the way, right, in Hobby Lobby, where we had uh, religious dissenters saying, I'll tell you what is an abortifacient. Uh, and these were all contraceptive uh, devices. And we had religious dissenters who were defining Plan B and L. Uh, you know, the morning after pill as they the, the, the claim is the religious dissenters get to tell you whether this causes an abortion or not. And that was the, the predicate for Hobby Lobby. And so for sure, we are now seeing that the same folks who are spiking the football for overturning Roe, and as Joyce says, criminalizing abortion in some cases, are also making claims about, well, then plan B or the morning after pill for sure is uh, triggering an abortion. And so that can also be prosecuted. And lest we sound hysterical or alarmist or sky is falling again, I guess we should just like think about, you know, Lizelle Herrera in Texas who was charged with murder in April over what was law enforcement deemed to be a self-induced abortion. I mean, this is not imaginary stuff. This is happening. And to Joyce's point about how this gets enforced, it's not just that this will be a way, and this brings us back to Matthew Hale and other legal luminaries that are cited in the Alito opinion for their 13th century visionary ideas about womanhood, the women that they went after as witches tended to be widows. They tended to be powerful people who were big talkers. Uh, so those are exactly the folks who get singled out for prosecution. 
But the flip of it is, and I feel like we, we maybe talked about this with Sarah, Al, in the show after SB8, which is the flip of it is that there is a massive chilling effect on the most vulnerable people who are terrified, who have possibly, you know, been raped or victims of incest or who are young or who are desperately poor. They're the folks who are now afraid to go to their pastor. They are afraid to go to a doctor. They are afraid to go to a teacher that they trust and ask for help. And so the effect of this is at both levels, it's both going to be used as a cudgel to just, you know, dream up reasons to go after women who might be strong and powerful, as Joy said, or influential. But it's also a way to freeze out the women who are most vulnerable, who most need to be helped, to be given sound medical advice, to be aided along in making really hard decisions in very little time. And those are the people who are going to be chilled, not just from terminating a pregnancy or seeking to get birth control, but from asking for help or advice. And the part of this that really, really terrifies me is that things that are enforced by vigilantes as opposed to very, very overzealous prosecutors means that absolutely no one is going to take the chance because you're only as safe as the craziest person who's decided that you're having an abortion. Uh, let me ask you about Coney Barrett uh, belonged to this group that she signed on this letter with this group that, that was against uh, in vitro fertilization, wanted to criminalize it. Could we go that far? Could that happen? I mean, because it creates fertilized eggs, right? Lots of them because you need lots of them to make this work. So eventually you it's successful and the other eggs are disposed of. Would that be murder under, is that possible? Under the personhood statutes, there's possibilities depending upon the medical procedures that we could end up in that world. And I've seen women who are using IVF speculate about what this means for frozen embryos. You know, are you now required to carry all of them to term? What do you do? And again, this takes us back to this notion of uncertainty as being a drag on women's abilities to be full participants in society. So, so this issue, questions about whether abortion is interstate commerce that aren't yet resolved in legal doctrine, Every place where there is uncertainty, I think of those as areas where people are exposed to risk. And as Dahlia points out, most often the people who most need certainty and most need protection are the people who are most harmed by these areas of uncertainty. I would just add that, you know, there was a Trump judge, uh, Sarah Pitlick, who was mm. uh confirmed to a lifetime appointed seat having strenuously uh, lobbied that both IVF and surrogacy should be unlawful. And so, again, I don't think these are, you know, fanciful questions you're asking, because we know that if we really believe that life begins at conception, we're talking about Yes. Uh, as you said, frozen embryos, we are talking about certain abortifacients, quote unquote, abortifacients, including things that are medically recognized as contraception. And so I think that that this question of when does life begin? And if we say it begins 
you know, five seconds after conception, then it is now in the hands of those who seek to prosecute that. And the real question here is not just the uncertainty that we're both talking about, but that we are really, truly seeing uh, lawmakers in red states for all the reasons we talked about it up top, you know, gerrymandered uh, state houses and no possibility of uh, a meaningful race or challenger. I mean, all of those democracy breaking systems bring us to this moment when you are going to have states that say absolutely, absolutely contraception is abortion. And the people who are going to have to find out are the people who have skin in the game. And they're going to find out based on the zealousness of whoever's decided to go after them. And that's just not, it is anathema to what we think rule of law means. Now you have a, you have a book coming out, I understand, Dahlia. I do. And uh, it's called Lady Justice, um, or as J- Jerry Lewis would say, Lady Justice. <laughs> it's, a, it's just a set of spells, witches' spells. <laughs> um, it locates itself firmly in the 13th century when women were all witches. It's, it's, um, <laughs> it is essentially about some of the stuff that Joyce works on and I work on, um, just women and democracy and voting and power. And I guess it was a little bit a response to the sense that there was a huge Ruth Bader Ginsburg-shaped hole in the way Mm. women think about um, law. And the only thing I wanted to lift up a little bit is that there were and are and continue to be extraordinary women lawyers uh, all around from Sally Yates at the beginning of the Trump era mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to um, Stacey Abrams, who is, we should all just say again, the reason those two Georgia Senate yep. seats flipped. And so it's essentially just a way, particularly going into a really, really challenging election, and particularly, I guess, now with um, abortion on the chopping block, to sort of recenter and refocus that we don't, in fact, live in a time where the Supreme Court persistently said women could not be lawyers, they could not take the bar, they could not argue cases because women are either their husband's property or um, their job is to bear children. We live in a really, really different time. And that is, all due respect to Justice Alito, what has changed uh, since the 13th century. And so I think power is a thing that is really available to women particularly. And um, this is a little bit of a charge to take it. Well, great. We, we, we look forward to that coming out. What do you expect in June when this comes out? Uh, in other words, do you expect the same decision, but rewritten, be rewritten to be less offensive? <laughs> I mean, are the other justices going to go like, you can't do that? <laughs> I mean, what, what, what is going to happen with that opinion? Or could Roberts possibly convince someone to flip? That's a big question. You know, I think it'll look a lot like this. Maybe the the edges get buffed a little bit to make sure that Justice Kavanaugh stays on board. But I think this is where this court is headed. And I think that this is where we knew this court was headed once the former president made it so abundantly clear that he would not appoint a justice who wasn't committed to reversing Roe. 
it's a little bit, I think, painful to hear folks say that they didn't expect this. This is where it has always seemed likely that we were heading. And the question that I have in my mind is whether American voters can maintain focus from June or maybe early July on into November and and carry their sense of outrage over this opinion uh, into the polls in November. No, I I agree completely uh, with Joyce. I think anyone who thought either that John Roberts still had control of this court, that he could really shape what came out of it, was disabused of that. When SB8 came down and it was manifestly clear he had lost control of this court. And I think anyone who thought that Justices Barrett or Kavanaugh were somehow moderate centrists just because they weren't Alito, Thomas and Gorsuch also should have been disabused of that. Uh, just seeing what has happened, you know, in voting right. You know. Coney Barrett, I don't get why anyone thought she wouldn't go this way because she, she wouldn't even basically say the the Griswold was settled, right? Right. I mean, come on. That's <laughs> I think that we we like the stories about swing justices, right? I mean, I've been covering the court lo- the swing justice. We we love to tell ourselves stories about these moderate people at the center of the court and like sure they're conservative, but they drift to the left. And my god, I wrote that piece 10,000 times about, you know, Anthony Kennedy and I think that once Kavanaugh became the median justice at this court, there was a real inclination to say, "Oh, he's a reasonable guy. He coaches girls sports, you know. He's he he mouths all the platitudes." And we really heard it at oral argument here about, oh, you know, we just want to have the court be legitimate. So let's treat this like it's Plessy and (laughs) reverse it because it's Plessy versus Ferguson, right? Yeah, we reverse things all the time. I mean, we've reversed things throughout our history. We've never reversed something to take away a right. No, but I think that he cares a lot what people think. And I think Justice Barrett cares a lot what people think. And here is where I guess I would just add, you know, my gloss to what Joyce says, which is this has much less to do with what the court's going to do in June uh, than what the rest of us do in June. And I think and it's November. possible in and, in and again in November, but I think it's entirely possible. And we haven't talked about this much, but the court that started the term with its public approval ratings in the toilet, right, in the high 30s and low 40s, is now even lower. We're seeing polling showing massive enthusiasm suddenly for term limits and other efforts to slightly curb the court's power. And the court understands that when the American public is pissed off, it's bad for the court. Now, whether there are three judges who understand that or six or five or two, or it's just John Roberts alone on an ice flow saying, but legitimacy, I guess that's the question. But I think it really, in some sense, depends less on the justices and more on exactly what Joyce said on how we receive this. Okay. Well, I I uh, I think that this is going to be a big issue in in November, and I think it's going to. So is I think I we're going to be seeing these January six hearings in prime time, right? And uh, and then also I think the October surprise is uh, somebody's going to kill Putin. <laughs> Then we win. That that would be that. It'll be a witch. My money's on the witches. <laughs> Burn the witch. Absolutely. Well, I I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. 
That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Once upon a beat. Remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus.